Section 11 of The Life and Sayings of Mrs. Partington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elsie Selwyn. Life and Sayings of Mrs. Partington and Others of the Family by B.P. Shillaber. Section 11. Writing. What a vast improvement has been made upon the old methods and means of traveling, even within the memory of the youngest of us. Recall the old staging system a moment to mind, when a day's ride was agony in its anticipation, not to be dispelled by the stern reality, over roads scarce redeemed from primeval roughness, which the jolly tongue of the red-faced driver, provided you were lucky enough to get on the box with him, was hardly capable of enlivening. What apprehension did timid insiders feel of threatening wreck at the bottom of the steep hills they rattled down? How fearful they would be of never reaching the top of the next hill, from the miserable horses giving out that were attached to the vehicle? How they trembled at the danger of having their brains knocked out against the roof of the low coach, and the rebound that anon jerked them from their seats as the stage wheel sunk into a cart rut. For this latter alarm, there was considerable cause to judge by a story told us once by one of the professors of the whip. He was riding, he said, one day over the way we were then traveling, in a terrible bad season of the year, when the cartwheels had cut the roads up into hideous gullies, into which the wheels would plunge, to the danger of all who chose to ride, and often the passengers had to get out and lay their shoulders to the work to assist the horses in their exertions to extricate the vehicle from the mud. The day he spoke of, however, he had but one passenger, an elderly gentleman wearing a wig, and feeling his responsibility lessened by his diminished fare, he took less heed as to where he went and dashed along over the road, whistling from absence of care, entirely regardless of horses or passenger, determined to achieve the distance to the next stopping place in a time mentally allotted for its performance. It was one of the old-fashioned low-roofed coaches, one of the oldest of its class. A sudden cry from a child who was passing caused him to look round, and there, to his horror, he saw the old gentleman's bald head glistening in the sun's rays like a mammoth mushroom, his eyes glaring on him wildly, and his mouth vainly endeavoring to articulate. It was but an instant before he was extricated from his perilous situation, and one of the sudden lurches of the road he had been forced up through the canvas roof, and this closing round his neck held him there, incapable of helping himself, and he had ridden many miles in this manner before he was discovered. "'That story's just as true now as I tell it to you,' said the driver. "'Don't doubt it,' we replied. "'But what became of the hat and the wig?' "'I can't say anything about the hat, but I'm very much mistaken if I didn't see that old wig for the three seasons used as a genteel residence for a family of crows down the road here.' "'A very singular story, we thought.' and think so still. Mrs. Partington looking out. I can't make it out, said Mrs. Partington one morning, when she first moved to the city after the railroad plowshare had upturned her hearthstone. I can't make it out. And she reached further out of the window to the imminent danger of the embargo returning again to her head, or of a summer set into the street below. She had caught the sound. Here's Hack from stentorian lungs under her window, and she could not make out what the sounds meant. I wish I'd known what the poor critter was crying about, but I thought he said he had a sick headache, and I declare I pity the poor soul that has got such a distressing melody as that. 
she drew in her head like a clam and shut down the window to keep out the sounds of a misery she could not relieve foreseeing things beforehand i wonder who's coming here today said mrs Pottington at the breakfast table turning her cups and working the tea-grounds to their oracular position it was the fourth of july and a procession was advertised to pass her door i wonder who is coming here today here's a horse and a wheelbarrow and a tub and there's a big jay and a cipher and here's a flock of geese and a cow the cow and the geese must mean the procession that's clear but what can the big g stand for and the rest of em it must mean our seventh cousin mrs tubbs and it is so kind of her to remember her poor relations at such time as she always does yes it must be here cause there's a tub and the wheelbarrow must run from an omnibus but what can the cipher be i guess though that doesn't mean anything scare up the german silver spoons margaret we must be hospitable i dare say she would be to us if she should ever ask us and we should go the prediction was fulfilled and the fat lady occupied the front seat in mrs partington's private box a sinuosity old roger was seated at the dinner-table by the side of seraphima the youngest of the five marriageable daughters the conversation turned upon conundrums and queer comparisons the old fellow leaned back in his chair and wiped the traces of soup from his mouth said as he took the young lady's hand in his own see this fair hand now white as a snowflake and rich with dimpled beauties seraphima smiled who is there among you that can tell me why the sweet hand is like the remains of that hawkshin soup before us all the fair hand was drawn back suddenly that fair hand compared with a vile pile of beef sinews the boarders were astonished at his audaciousness seraphima frowned you can't guess can you said the jolly old fellow well continued he it is because there is such tenderness in it he pronounced it tenderness and seraphima smiled but the boarders who had found the meat rather hard didn't see the relevancy of it they didn't know what tendon meant no more than a cow knows about its grandmother the science of fish i wonder what this itch theology is said mrs partington giving a somewhat novel pronunciation of the old science as she read the announcement of the lecture by professor agassiz what in the name of old scratch can it be i suppose it must mean the itch for meddling with politics and things that doesn't concern em and running down their own country and relations and praising up everybody else and at war with everything all the time they are preaching peace someone explained that it was the science of fishes well well said the lady it's just as well for a minister preaching politics is like a fish out of water he's out of his ailment she passed over to the deaths and marriages and ike ganged his hook with an afternoon smelting in his eye and a ball of mrs partington's piping cord in his pocket for contingencies internal indebtedness when i let her the eggs said mrs partington she said she would be eternally in debt to me and i guess she will how can people do so i would go round the world on all fours a-begging before i'd be guilty of such a thing ah well it takes everybody to make a world and she puts in psalteress enough to make up for the non-returned eggs her neighbor had decidedly taken a rise out of her borrowing newspapers shall i have the goodness to look at your newspaper one moment asked mrs partington at the grocery store certainly my dear madame with the greatest reluctance possible replied the grocer they exchanged glances and there was so much of thankfulness in her eye that he almost made up his mind to subscribe for another paper for her express accommodation promising children 
What a to-do people make because children have to know something when they're young, said Mrs. Partington as she read an account of many men who had been distinguished in early years. Now all these together don't know so much, but one half is Dolly Sprague's baby. That is a perfect prodigal, to be sure, such an intellect. Why, it got through its Google Googles and into its bye-byes before it was seven months old. And when it was only a year and a half old, it emptied a snuff-box down its precious old grandmother's throat as she was asleep and came nigh suffocating the old lady before she could wake up to conscientiousness and spit it out. There never was such another, its mother says. And who knows so well as a mother what a child is that has it watched over and it seen it expand itself like a tansy blossom and sweet as a young cauliflower? The old lady was always eloquent on this topic. She was a believer in prodigies and thought Solomon must have consulted some young mother when he wrote that every generation grows wiser and wiser. Forgiveness of Wrong He called me a termagrant and said I wasn't any better than I should be, said Mrs. Partington as she threw her shawl into the water bucket and her bonnet on the floor on her return from her landlord's where she had vainly sought an extension of time for payment of the rent. There never was such an aspiration cast upon one of our family before, and there is no such thing in our whole chronology. And there is any statuary law for slander, I'll see if he can prove it. The termagrant I don't mind so much, but to be called no better than I should be, the mean penny-catching curmudgeon? But no, it's why I call him names. It makes me most as bad as he is. I'll borrow the money and pay him. I will, and show him that I don't bear mallets. And she brightened up in the thought of this mode of revenge, bustling about and putting the house to rights in the best humor in the world. Her conduct was a sermon in seven tracts on the sublime principle of forgiveness of wrong. What kin is that which all Yankees love to recognize, and which always has sweet associations connected with it? Why, pumpkin, to be sure. A negative affirmative. Mr. Timms, a farmer up in the country, had a habit of putting in yes, 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 at every pause in his speaking, which sometimes had a ludicrous effect. The old fellow owned a fine horse, which he was very careful of, and would never lend or hire him to the most particular of his friends. A youngster of the village, who wished the horse for a Sunday ride, went over to the old man's house to hire the animal if possible. So, you want my horse, young man? Yes, 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 yes said Timms, and you say you'll ride him gently. Yes, 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 and you'll give him plenty of oats. Yes, 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 and rub him down well when you get where you're going. Yes, 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 and will give me a dollar for the use of him. Yes, yes, yes. Well, upon the whole, you can't have him. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. The young man left sorrowing. We see it stated in the prince frequently that vessels going to California double Cape Horn. If this is the case, by and by, there will not be a single Cape Horn left. Taking pictures. That is a splendid likeness by heaven, exclaimed Augustus rapturously as Mrs. Poddington showed him a capital daguerreotype of her own venerable frontispiece. No, it isn't, said she, smiling. No, it isn't by heaven itself, but by its sun. Isn't it beautifully done? All the cemetery of its features and cap strings and specks. It's brought out as natural as if from a painter's palette. Any young lady now, continued she, 
He would like to have the lineaments of her pretended husband to look out when he is away, could be made happy by this blessed and cheap contrivance of making pictures out of sunshine. She clasped the cover of the picture, paused as if pursuing in her own mind the train of her admiration, and went out like an exploded rocket. Man is born to work, and he must work while it is day. Have I not, said a great worker, all eternity to work in? Well, said Slug, who didn't love work, if that's the case, what in time's the use of putting in so? I'd just the leaves divide the work, and do part of mine when the cove's resting. Procosity. The elder smith was somewhat astonished one evening at finding a berry pie for tea, a rather remarkable thing in his gastronomical experience, for Mr. Smith indulged in few luxuries for regions which will be understood by people of limited means, was an excellent pie, the chef de haut of the culinary skill of Mrs. Smith, who prided herself upon what she could do if she only had the grievances. Smith, Jr., numbering some three summers, sat opposite his sire. My son, said the olden, during a pause in the work of mastication. Did your mother make this pie today? Certainly, said the precocious youth. She didn't, of course, make it tomorrow. The elder Smith looked mournfully at the miniature edition of himself, then, wiping the crumbs from his mouth and ejaculating, So young, he left the house. Mr. Thimble's Mousetrap The old gentleman one morning discovered a mouse in his bedchamber. A mouse or a rat was what he held in the utmost dread, and even the idea of getting his hand on one by any accident always gave him a tremor. Seeing the little animal thus in his very bedchamber was most provoking, and reaching for an oaken cane always at the head of his bed, a defense against hostile invaders of this inner shrine, he at once vowed the mouse his destruction, and, cane in hand, started upon its accomplishment. Ha! said he between his fixed teeth, as he closed the door and firmly grasped his stick. Now, Mr. Mouse, I've got you. I'll fix your flint for you. And the poor little timid thing running into a corner, the old gentleman leveled a furious blow at him, repeating his threat to fix his flint for him. The offer to fix the flint for the mouse is hardly intelligible in this age of patent matches, but Mr. Thimble lived in thunderbox times, when flint and steel were inseparable, and he probably thought that an animal so inclined to steel must have a flint. The blow was wrongly directed, and the mouse escaped to another corner. Another blow, and another, resulted in the same manner, until at last the mouse, finding cover beneath an antique bureau, the old gentleman was compelled to exert all his generalship to bring him out. But in vain he got down on all fours and looked beneath the bureau. In vain was the cane thrust in the direction of his eyes. The enemy was nowhere to be seen, and Mr. T got up, flushed with the exercise, brushed his knees, and went down to breakfast, wondering where the little animal had gone. After relating the incident, he was calmly engaged in cooling his coffee when, dropping his cup, he darted from the table into the middle of the floor, dragged half the breakfast things after him, and practiced antics very unbecoming in an elderly gentleman of sixty-two. His family, astonished to see him thus, had incipient ideas of lunatic asylums and straitjackets dart across their minds, the old gentleman the while capering about the room like a mad dancing master, shaking his right leg as if St. Vetus had selected this member for his particular favor, regardless of the rest, until, with a tremendous spasmodic kick, out fell the mouse from where he had secreted himself. It was a long time before Mr. T regained composure. Some time after, speaking of his activity, Mrs. Thimble remarked, My dear, I didn't think it was in you. 
Mr. T looked queerly at her as she uttered this, but didn't say anything. Mrs. Partington versus Cookbooks A beefsteak fried in water? said Mrs. Partington. It seems to me it must taste very much as if it was biled. They do have such curious ideas about cooking nowadays, and people have to learn lots of outlandish names before they know what they've got for dinner. Ah, the good old times was the best, when people seasoned their dishes with flag root and such spices, and a poor man's fragile repast was eaten when he knew what he had to be thankful for. What a cook she is, to be sure, and isn't it the cause of rejoicing for a week among the boys in the neighborhood when she fries up a batch of doughnuts, and Ike knows where they are kept? No wonder, she thought, as she said, that he ate like Pharaoh's lean kind that eat up the fat of the land of Egypt. Oh, doesn't he disclaim fluidly, exclaimed Mrs. Partington, delightedly, as she listened to the exercises of the Humptown Intellectual Mutual Improvement Society. Her admiration knew no bounds as a young declaimer with inspiration truly demosthenic launched the flashing beams of his eloquence broadcast among his auditors with thrilling, dazzling, burning force, anon soaring like a rocket into the amphirian blue, dashing helter-skelter amidst the stars and harnessing the fiery comets to the car of his genius. Anon scoring the land like a racer, the hot sparks like young lightning marking his phaetonish course, anon breaking through the terraquist shell and reveling in Hadrian horrors in underground localities somewhere. The voice of Mrs. Partington, whom we left standing on the threshold of her admiration some way back, recalls us to herself. How fluidly he talks! He ought to be a minister, I declare, and how well he would look with a surplus on, to be sure. He stands on the nostrum as if he were born and bred in oratory all his life. I wish the president was here tonight. I know he'd see he was an extraordinary young man, and like as not appoint him minister extraordinary instead of some that never preached any at all. The old lady beat time with her fan to his gesticulations, nodding the black bonnet approvingly, and smiled as the young man told the world that Franklin had made it a present of the printing press. Outrage During a concert one night, a reckless individual in the upper gallery of the large hall in which it was held, whose name we did not ascertain, allowed his bill of the concert to slip through his fingers, which, falling below by the rule of gravitation, fell suddenly upon the exposed head of one of our first young men, the effect of the concussion upon an object so tender may be well imagined. Smelling bottles were called for, and none being at hand, one young lady applied her glove to the sufferer's nose, which, having been lightly cleansed with turpentine, had the effect of bringing him to. The diabolical perpetrator of the act had the audacity to look over the edge of the gallery and grin at the injury he had done, but before the officer could get to the gallery and arrest him, he had flown. P.S. We wish it to be distinctly understood that it was the glove and not the nose that had been cleaned with the turpentine. Ike in the Country During the last winter, Ike was sent to visit some of Mrs. Partington's relatives, who live on the borders of the Great Bay. Squid River, which empties into the bay, is a very beautiful stream in summer, but in winter it is dreary enough, with the tall trees stripped of their foliage, standing, as it were, shivering upon its brink but it is a rare skating course from Moose Village to the river's junction with the bay. Ike had used up all his resources for fun at the end of the third day. He had snowballed the cattle into a frenzy, caught all the hens in a box trap, tied the pigs together by the legs, sucked all the eggs he could find, and was looking round for something else to do while the boys were at school. 
he was just calculating as he poised a snowball how near he could come to a tame pigeon on the window-sill without hitting it when the glass was saved by the appearance of the house-cat outside the sacred precinct of the kitchen ike had watched this cat wistfully ever since he had been there and the cat had manifested a strange repugnance for him ever since he trod on her tail as she lay by the stove he immediately seized upon her and expedients never wanting soon suggested themselves to him there were plenty of clamshells about the yard and selecting four of the smoothest he by the aid of some grafting wax at hand soon had tabby beautifully shod with clamshells and on the way to the river ike's idea was to learn her to skate the river was smooth as glass and a sharp wind blew along its surface towards the bay now puss said ike as he pushed her upon the ice go it an instinct of danger instantly seized upon her her claws which ike had found so sharp a short time before were now useless to her and with a growl of spite she swelled her caudal appendage to the enormous size which taking the wind impelled the poor feline like a clipper over the slippery path the tail stood straight as a topmast and grew bigger and bigger and faster and faster flew the animal to which the tail belonged ike laughed till he cried to see the cat scuttling before the wind but now the bay lay before her and far out over the smooth ice was the blue water of the sea the result can be guessed the cat never came back and everybody wondered what had become of her and thought it augured ill luck for a cat to leave the house so suddenly ike thought so especially for the cat ike's conscience reproached him sadly but he compromised the matter by leaving the tenants of the barnyard in peace all the while he stayed there and came home with a pocketful of doughnuts and an enviable reputation for propriety. The New Year and Allegory What are your intentions toward Miss New Year? sternly asked the old guardian of years, as time, in the garb of youth, stepped forward to make his proposals. The fair being to whom he aspired stood veiled before him in mystical beauty beside the seer, whose dim eyes had seen the birth and death of thousands of years, and whose beard was white with the frost of centuries, and whose voice creaked with the rust of many ages. Time, buoyant on the hopes of youth, promised much. Their union, he said, would be fruitful of great events. Joy and prosperity would attend upon it. By their union, the arms of the weak would be strengthened, the tyrant's power be shorn of its might the poor and downtrodden be exalted, the desponding be made to sing for joy, abuse be banished from the earth, the wrath of men be restrained, struggle for light be crowned with success. The old guardian shook his head incredulously, and a tear fell upon his grey beard as he spoke. Alas, alas, he said, the same promises were made by your sire to his fair mother, and broken, as have been all the promises of time since the world began where is the fruition of the glorious hopes held out for bygone years they have found their end in the gloom and disappointment how can i trust then this precious charge to your arms in view of olden failures then young time laying down his hourglass and gaily swinging his scythe among the few weeds left of the herbage of the old year made answer with a firm tone and a cheerful air the violated promises of others should not be the criterion for judging of mine nor their failure be urged as a presage for my own ill success let me prove myself by my acts and if endeavour may win the goal my chance is good let me try the old guardian grasped time by the hand approvingly the hand of the virgin year was placed in his and as the clock struck the hour of twelve the form of the old seer faded from view in the mystical one for better or for worse, for joy and sorrow, became the wedded bride of time. 
Personal cleanliness is a virtue, but it is not pleasant to see a man cleaning his teeth with a questionable pocket handkerchief. Neither is it to see a man, however attentive he may be to the wants of his family, put a beef stocked in the crown of his hat and fill his trousers pockets with cucumbers. It don't look well. End of section 11